0: And welcome to a very special episode of the Motor Mouth Podcast. Uh, As part of our tie-up with the Brain Tumor Charity, we'll be doing a few of these spin-off shows with a, a wide range of people from the motoring world who all, unfortunately, share one thing apart from a love of motorsport, and that is that they've all been affected by a brain tumor in some way. You can check out episode one now where I share my story and the reason behind our team up with the charity. Uh, But in today's show, I'll be joined by Richard Jones, the planning director for the Williams Formula One team. His job is pivotal to the running of the team and involves setting up and enabling plans to deliver projects on time in full from rapid in-season developments to a whole new car program. He also sadly lost his sister Eleanor to a brain tumor and he joins me now, Richard, Thank you so much for firstly, you know, giving up your time to to talk to me. And it's a difficult issue to discuss, of course, especially in this kind of setting. But we really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story. Um, before we chat about your experience with Brainship, I think, you know, it's great to get a sense of who you are and what you do every day. And of course, you know, our audience Big motorsport fans, and you've got a very, very important job at Williams as the planning director, um, which is a huge job. And I suppose people might not actually know exactly what it is. So, first of all, why don't we start with you know how you got to where you are now? When did motorsport become a thing for you, and you thought actually, you know what, I want to work in Formula One?
2: Well, thanks, thanks very much for having me first, and, and a huge thanks also for the work you guys are doing to promote the Brain Team of Charity. I think that's awesome. Um, I guess for me motorsport I've got this memory of being age 12 and telling one of my school friends mums that I was going to work in F1 but I actually don't know where that came from because I didn't grow up in a F1 family Um, and so the most vivid memory probably is I had some family friends who were kind enough to take me to Silverstone a few times in my mid-teens and the race that really sticks out his 98 British Grand Prix mainly because it was absolutely pouring with rain and I was standing on a muddy bank it's
0: not not a British Grand Prix without rain exactly
2: (laughs) standing on a muddy bank at Abbey um with water literally pouring down my back and David Coulthard spun off in front of me and back in those days they just left the car on the gravel by the fence and so I spent probably a good chunk of the race just looking at his car um and then somehow Michael Schumacher won the race by coming into the pits at the end instead of taking a stop-go penalty. So he actually crossed the finish line in the pit lane, won the race. We had no idea what was going on back on our muddy hill. Um, But that memory is so vivid um, that from then onwards, I've been fascinated by it. That also happened to be france 98 world cup final day so it's just one of those epic sporting days went back oh days, wow watch france beat brazil and you kind of go right i want to be in sport i want to be in Sport. yeah
0: here we go. You want that that adrenaline rush somehow, I suppose, don't you? And it's such, such those nothing beats those kind of sporting moments, does it? Absolutely. I think also recently, I think was it uh, you know when uh, the Olympics, you know, where, where Super Saturday and, and stuff like that. That's what reaches moments like that make you go, oh my god! Yeah. you know, sport. You, you just want the hair be on the back with of your neck
2: it. moments, don't you? Yeah.
0: Exactly. So that's when you sort of first, you know, that, that poor woman who you said, I'm going to work in F1, yeah. <laughs> probably didn't know probably didn't know what you were going to end up doing. So, you know, what was your um, your, your sort of initial steps to being there? This uh, was, you know, university or, or did you go do apprenticeships and things like that? Yeah.
2: So I I assumed that I needed to get into a technical route. Um, so yeah. enjoyed the maths and physics, went down the engineering route, went to uni to do engineering. Um, and actually in my first year, I started writing to F1 teams to try and get work experience. And this is going to make me sound really old. But back in those days, this was proper letters that I wrote. Yeah. Um, and the teams were <laughs> kind enough to actually write back on headed paper. So I had on my wall in my student room, all of my rejection letters from all the teams. as motivation to keep pushing, keep yeah. working hard, keep trying. Um And then as I went through uni, I realized that there were people that just loved the technical detail way more than I did. So I could do it, but I wasn't fascinated by it. Um, And so I actually ended up kind of accidentally falling into a consultancy who were recruiting engineers to take an engineering approach to how a business works and how to make a business perform better. And It's a really long way around to getting to F1, but actually it was an amazing learning experience because I started in a brick factory, I worked in submarines, worked in sports, retail, food factories, hospitals, and always looking at a business and how it works and working out how to help that team make it work better. And I'd been doing that for about 10 years, business grew a lot, so a huge experience, but I got to the point where I was either going to be a consultant forever or I should go and work actually in a business. And then I sat down and thought, well, what kind of business do I actually want to work for? Well, it still only is an F1 team. Um, so back to letter writing, I <laughs> literally look on the map, write a letter to my nearest F1 team, which happens to be Williams. And fortunately, the letter ends up on the right person's desk through a series of conversations. I ended up uh, taking a role actually in the advanced engineering business to take learnings from how f1 works and performance in f1 and take that to some of the sponsors and some of the other clients as well as doing some internal improvement projects so kind of a mixture of f1 and my previous consulting background mm. um so that kind of got me in touching distance but not quite there and then so i've been doing that for about three years build a small team to do that and then 2019 season started uh in f1 which for williams was bad so you'll probably remember uh or certainly even watching it the second time around on netflix was even worse oh um, no but, but we missed the first day of testing we missed the second day of testing um and obviously
0: was- and that, that's a big impact on a team, team. isn't it
2: because it's not just yeah. missing those days but that means that you're quite a long way behind in the quantities going to the first races and so on so i was watching that on the sidelines but i then got asked to come and be part of the team to uh to review what had happened and what had gone wrong and that really gave me an opportunity to understand how the F1 team itself worked and to start to make some suggestions. And then through that, I then got asked to become, to come and be part of the solution. Um, so by Claire and Mike. Um, and so kind of a few months later, I then started this role. So as you said, planning director, it basically is the pressure job. In, in that <laughs> there's this kind of unwritten rule of just don't do 2019 again. Um, we can't be late. Yes. <laughs> um but it's actually it's this kind of threading the needle of you can't be late but you also can't be early because if you're early then you've left performance development time on the table and so mm. you're trying to go cool we've got twenty five thousand parts we haven't designed most of them yet but we need to somehow predict exactly when we need to start them in order to get them when we need them so that we actually hit the track on the right day
0: yeah uh, and, and what, what a journey it's been though since then because the following year you know y- y- you had it together yeah Fortunately, <laughs> so, <laughs> I got, you kept your job. Really. No,
2: Genuinely <laughs> we could be like, okay, well, if this goes wrong, there's like, it's pretty easy to point a finger. Um, yeah. and, and it's been a huge learning curve, but I love it cause it's an amazing challenge. So yeah, great place to be great role.
0: And it's obviously, you know, that, w- what a great journey, first of all, to, to getting to Formula One. You know, I suppose that, well, there is no straightforward journey, really. Uh, to, for Everybody's got a different path. So from, from Subways to consultant uh, Subways? From submarines. <laughs> submarines. <laughs> from, from Subway to yeah. Williams. Now that really would be a journey. Yeah. Um, so uh, thank you for telling me that. But so now looking at, um, you know, Williams in, in its current state, obviously it's a team who are trying to rebuild and, and get back up the grid. Last year with, uh, with George Russell and Nicholas Latifi, that, that was a, a much stronger, Stronger year than 2019 um what are you looking for and hoping for for 2021 you know we're recording this in february so pre-season testing just around the corner and actually williams you've just done your your shakedown of the new car um yesterday as we record this so that that's you know good size the car's ready to go i suppose so what 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 happens now uh ahead of pre-season testing and what are you looking for for this season
2: yeah so i guess Yesterday is another relief point for me because that is the was the plan to do shakedown yesterday. Yeah. So the fact that that's actually happened and gone really smoothly is great. Um, looking back at last year, we we made huge progress. So it's so unfortunate that we didn't actually score points in the end because we didn't really get the recognition for the huge step forward that the team had made, um, both on track but off track as well. And actually, in some ways, I'm even more proud of how the team responded to all of the challenges, both with COVID but also the change of ownership, change of leadership. It's a crazy year for us. So for this year, it is just about keeping that momentum of improving. Like We're pretty realistic about how far you can or how fast you can develop where you sit in the field relative to everybody else and mm. everybody else is trying to improve too. But it's about... And
0: actually, because, sorry, obviously for this year, you know, there's a bit of a freeze on, on most of the regulations ahead of the big change for 2022. So I suppose, is there really that much you can do?
2: Yeah, there's still quite a bit uh oh good still quite a bit. <laughs> and and i guess we're challenging ourselves because we want to keep pushing all the way through because we feel like if we keep pushing we're going to keep developing as a team that's going to help us long run so mm. so it's definitely not ignore this year just look at next year it's much more keep developing ourselves as a team um, and then hopefully I- we make progress and then keep making progress
0: and so, what does a you know a typical day involve for you? You know, is it is it nine to five? Is it early morning, late night? Is it work till the job is done? And, and you know, how how does a typical Monday to Friday work for you? I guess
2: typical, uh, like right now, I'm in the homeschooling juggle, so I'm literally sh-
0: God, yeah. So typical is the wrong word, sure, really, isn't it? <laughs> sharing
2: homeschooling with my wife, um, so that's not typical. So if we ignore that. um it's kind of easiest to describe it by the different things that i'm involved with um because i'll go from a meeting which is about what parts we've got or shortages we've got right now for the next event um so oh shit we haven't got enough of these things because we had the same accident two weeks in a row now what are we going to do type meetings uh to then looking at the i guess the exciting bit which is the upgrades coming so we're doing a load of development here we can see we can get some more performance on the car Part of my job is how do we get that on the car quicker? Because sooner we get it, the better. Um, But then we're also obviously looking ahead at the next car. So I can jump from a meeting about this weekend to a meeting about the start of next year and what order of play we're going to be doing things in. I'm then also involved in how the overall team works. So I guess a couple of the key things. One is young talents. I'm heavily involved in grad schemes. Um, So getting involved in recruitment and development of those people, which I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. But then how business systems work and what we can improve. And then my own team. So we've, we've only been in existence for less than two years. So we're just developing as fast as we can. So that feels like a really fun, almost kind of startup environment, trying to work out how we do what we do and make it better all the time. But then there's also the welfare of all those people because people are working from home, sometimes in the office, all the COVID testing and so on. So just making sure that everybody's okay. It's become Mm. quite a big part of the world because you just don't see people in the way that you used to. I
0: was going to say, how you know, I suppose your job is is pretty essential. And I think sports have a, you know, certain high elite sports have certain get outs from the, all the COVID restrictions. Are you able to go in much as you were before? Is it relatively straightforward in terms of actually visiting and working in the factory?
2: Yeah, because we're a manufacturing business and an elite sport team. So, so the factory is open because we obviously need to be able to make parts. Yeah. So then we have a testing regime on site. So we're testing everybody every week because we need to keep the factory running. Um, and then for people that are involved in, like at the moment, we're obviously making and building cars. So that involves most people. So we've just had to get the testing in place to make sure we're okay to keep going.
0: Well, fingers crossed for, for 2021. And, and, you. and, you know, for, I suppose four million- general you know we're hoping for a much more straightforward season and and that I'm sure will help you massively considering how well as you said you you managed to to juggle all, everything from last year from you know rebuilding the team to being more competitive as well as the obviously the owner change and dealing with all the COVID restrictions as well I think it and you're right actually although everyone said that you know it was a, a really good improvement for Williams I suppose it was kind of masked a bit by the fact that you know didn't quite get the point mm. so close so many times yeah. but also with everything else going on but um, I think twenty 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 one 2021 will have will have motor mouth will be fully behind thank you, you very um, much. So thank you well that's a bit about you and your your role in, in motorsport and williams now obviously we're, we're teaming up with the brain tumor charity here and we know we we've got this association with them and it's all about people working in motorsport who have unfortunately th- this connection with brain tumors so tell me a bit about your sister eleanor who you who you sadly lost to a brain tumor and what she was like a, as a person
2: yeah sure um so she was Eleanor to some of us, Ellie, She She's one of those people that is just full of energy, laughter, kind of chasing fun. Um, always up for trying different things, particularly live music, different sports. And she just made a huge number of friends along the way. Really bubbly person. Um, one of the things I thought about shortly after she had died was if she knew she only had 36 years, would she have done it differently? And I just don't think she would have. Like she was the sort of person that prioritized doing things that she enjoyed. She made the most of every opportunity. And that's something I've already reflected on because I think we can all learn something from that kind of approach to life.
0: Definitely. I think if one thing this kind of uh diagnosis does to, to you and the, the people around the person who's being diagnosed is you realise, you know, how how short life is, don't you? And how much we take for granted.
2: Yeah you just don't imagine people disappearing like that so you have just got to make the most of everything you can
0: was she uh, was she into formula 1 was she quite enjoying your path towards it or your your love for it
2: i'd say interested in intrigued but not passionate <laughs> um, wanted to find <laughs> out more enough. about it came like came with us to qualifying actually while she was undergoing her treatment so like just being around live events was her thing There's just the buzz from that kind of thing so
0: now of course i suppose not not knowing much about the prognosis and disease, because the one thing I often find that you know, when when my mum was diagnosed with the, with a glioblastoma, which is the same as what your sister was diagnosed with, you know, I I suppose I'm lucky in a way that my dad is a, is a neurosurgeon and my mum was a nurse, so. I come from a very medical family who you know specialized in brains so that you know uh, I if I had any questions they could be answered quite quickly and quite readily but also I had I suppose the I was able to be a bit a bit not na- a bit blissfully naive I suppose because I didn't have to worry too much because I knew that whatever my dad was doing was probably the right way to do things. And I didn't have to, you know, interfere or get too much on top of the subject because, I mean, it's something a little bit I regret personally, but you, I think you do have a bit of that blissful naivety if, if you don't want to know the full reality that sometimes if you can spare yourself. So, How did you deal initially with with the the, the diagnosis of the disease? How did you make yourself more aware of it? How how did you deal with that, those awful conversations that you have to have?
2: So I guess the very first, the first situation was um, my sister. We were actually all at my parents' house um, because it was their wedding anniversary weekend. And she was having Mm. terrible headaches. And we were like so naive about the existence of brain tumors that it was almost like, oh, wow. I wonder if I've got a brain tumor because my headache's so bad. Just a complete throwaway comment, no one really thinking anything of it. Um, but from that, my sister went to see the doctor, got a scan. And a few days later, I was traveling into London to go with her to meet the consultant surgeon to review the results of the scan. And she had, they'd already given her steroids by that stage to try to reduce the s- swelling. Steroids had had a pretty big impact on her as in she'd just gone a bit loopy to be honest so we're in with the consultant and it was like right i need to understand this because i'm the one that's going to actually be taking this in she's partly in shock she's partly high on steroids so i've got to get this (laughs) work out what the hell's going on Um, and then just because i was in that first meeting i then became the person that went to the consultancy appointments a kind of family representative um so understanding it debriefing sessions with her and then kind of passing on a briefing to family and friends um, almost became a role I guess and I didn't as you said I didn't know anything which is the complete opposite of you guys situation so going into those meetings and then asking loads of questions to try and understand it but then also referring to actually the brain tumor charity website is brilliant because there's a huge amount of material on there so you end up researching through there, giving me prompts or questions to ask and that kind of thing. And,
0: yeah, and, and feeling it, my it, way through it. it. It's so, especially with the, with the website, it's so easy as well when you go on it and it has those big three uh, three bits of graphic. You know, do you have a brain tumor? Do you know someone with a brain tumor? Or have you got you know? Any, and it's just yeah. it, it takes takes that unnecessary stress away because it's already uh, a huge situation to deal with. So to, to finding out the information, you just want that to be as simple as possible, yeah, don't you? Absolutely, yes, yeah. So it was brilliant that they were able to to help you through that. And then were you able to sort of use that information and were you able to get, you know, the answers you needed and, and able to take those, those next steps going forward? What kind of um, uh, treatment was she going to go through?
2: So she had surgery very, very quickly. Um, then we went into radiotherapy and chemotherapy uh, course. And I guess over time you get into this cycle of you're waiting for a scan to see if the treatment that you're having has an impact um, and then at a stage a bit later we ended up as a result of scan needing to change to a different chemo mm-hmm. so all the way through that we're having meetings understanding what the consultant's seeing what the consultants think is going on and in our I became really conscious that when when we went for a debrief over, over a coffee afterwards how I gave my or communicated my interpretation of how the meeting had gone impacted her mindset significantly and so we talk quite a lot about kind of trusting the process trusting the experts and not worrying about the outcome and they're kind of trying to have the belief that if we do what they want us to do in the right way and we understand it in the right way and we just keep focusing on the next step of the process whatever the next bit of treatment is that's going to be the right journey to getting through this Um, And so as you go along, you're kind of understanding what the treatment is, what it might do, understanding the the side effects and just helping her to manage each stage of the process, but actually Mm. never looking, tried never to look too far ahead because I didn't really want to know where it could go. I wanted to know that this bit was going to work
0: yeah that i think that's all too common for for especially this kind of because there are lots of different brain tumors of course but a glioblastoma is obviously very common amongst amongst adults as well in particular but the and the outcome is just so bleak currently and you know i think today i saw in the news that they've made such a little breakthrough in terms of how how they treat the cells for a glioblastoma but it's still one that the where the outcome is you, you, you it's the same process for everybody over and over again you have the chemo you wait and check for the scan and then you do a different version and fortunately that that's just the the way it goes, and it becomes a bit of a horrible groundhog day, doesn't it? Yeah. Every you know, every every month or so. Yeah. How, how, if at all, did you cope? Because you were enjoying, as we discussed at the start of the show, such highs in your professional life, making huge waves towards you know, your your dream job, I suppose, working for one of the, the biggest Formula One teams, one of the big, biggest British Formula One teams in history. Dealing with that and also then balancing with such such personal lows how if at all did you manage that
2: so firstly I guess I've never thought about the career stuff being a high yet I feel like I've got this opportunity to take on this challenge with a great mm. bunch of people but I'm right at the beginning of it so the, yep. so the high is going to come later I'm hoping <laughs> um but it so it more. Well, I guess the additional di- diagnosis for my sister was almost exactly the same time as the verbal job offer to come and work in F1. And so it felt really felt like I just had two massive challenges at exactly the same time, <laughs> a work one and a personal one. And in a weird way, there's some parallels between them because it's a really steep learning curve. It's a different language that people are talking to yeah. you in. It's really, really complicated. Uh, but actually, they're the bits that, I was kind of trained to work in from all the consultancy background of going into different environments. So I could treat the hospital meetings a bit like a work meeting where I could I'd go in, I need to try and understand what's going on, understand what the next steps are. But then that flipped completely when you walk out of the meeting and then it's me and my sister and it's her reality that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting down over a coffee and trying to kind of process it. Um, and we'd work through that. Then it's on the train home when I'm just digesting it all um but then it obviously massively helps to flip back to the other challenge of into work mode because shit I've got to plan this car and I don't yeah. really understand what I'm doing yet so I think the it, just did that did it. that help yeah because I was just so busy
0: yeah but I mean that, that I think I'm glad you said that because I think it must be a common thing but I I threw myself into doing work and, and trying to just anything any chance that I had it would be I'd probably be working and trying to make make something happen you know working in motorsport working you know my way up as well in in, in, on the broadcast side you, you you chuck just as much at it and it helped so much with that and it's interesting you say you know enjoying enjoying the highs I suppose no matter what the highs, it, I I found that even for a birthday or or getting you know uh, a, a meeting with somebody or you really want to get everything was just dulled. Yeah, it completely. didn't it didn't it didn't matter that much. And although it was in my head, I was like, this is brilliant found it very difficult to celebrate anything and uh, i still do a little bit i don't think that 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 i've probably you know you, you, it goes perhaps over time but you know i'm two years on now it's still you know i don't particularly like celebrating you know birthdays and stuff like that because it's such a big a big reminder of, of who's missing
2: yeah i completely agree with that it is like dulling it is a good description you mm. just like head down smashing on with it <laughs> yeah
0: yeah so how do you manage do you manage now you know is it still very much are you just sort of getting trying getting on with a with a regular day and your job is busy enough is is it just carrying on and keeping busy and with your own family and, and work as well or have you able you know been able to, to talk to anybody else i did a bit of therapy i didn't do much of it but you know talking to someone did help initially um but again you know it, it, it's everyone's different
2: so i guess the first a uh, bit of context is that because of COVID, we haven't actually had a memorial service yet. So we were able That's to have tough. a like, really small funeral with just five of us and my other sister on FaceTime from Australia um, at the time. But we're still waiting to be able to give her the send off with all of her friends and wider family. Yeah. Um, in terms of me personally, I, I didn't know what normal grief was. So I guess in some ways I was like waiting for it to hit me and then um i knew of a model you may have come across the kubler ross model which is like the five stages of grief okay so i actually knew of it from back in consulting world because in in business you use it as as a guidance of what happens when an organization is going through major change and it's actually really similar stages so i've come across it there and so I looked it up again and I'm because I'm an engineer I was like right this is how I'm feeling today so I can look at where that is on this model and then that's going to tell me how I'm doing through my grief and then what's going to happen next and I look at it and it's like no that doesn't make any sense because I'm not there and I'm not there but sometimes it's It's not logical it's not um and then I happened to listen to a podcast that Natalie Pinkham did with a bereavement counsellor called Julia Samuel and she did it in tribute to Caroline Flack and of course and julia talked all about the different stages of grief and it kind of made me realize that you can feel any one of those stages on any given day sometimes multiple in the same day you don't know what's going to trigger it but that's that is what normal grief is and that's completely okay and so to start to get used to the fact that different triggers would make me feel different things and accept that that happened I guess over time, and I'm still totally on this journey, but trying to transition more of the time that when she turns up or something's triggered her turning up, that becomes a positive, it's a happy memory so that you get kind of used to the feeling and you turn it into the happy feeling. Um and yeah i'm i'm working on it it's working progress as i'm sure it is. no me. i
0: think i i i what you said there i think i'm still very much working on that you know i, I get annoyed at myself when because i suppose the last you know the most recent memories i have of of my are when i almost say it, it wasn't fully my mum because of what this kind of you know brain tumor does to somebody you know depending you know the, the obviously it varies from person to person but it very much changed who my mum was as a person because of of course when you have chemotherapy when you have two brain surgeries radiotherapy countless amounts of drugs and and the steroids you know she changed not just physically but also um you know within herself as well yeah. uh, and that and that was difficult to process and and those memories are still with me so i'm <clears throat> working on trying to as much as you know we, we had some you know treasured time together in those last couple of months but also at the same time i, I want to remember more of what happened before all of it which yeah. i very much struggled struggle to do still and and turning the these when she does crop up as you say i like that feeling when she when she turns up yeah. um of turning it into a happy feeling so i think uh, you know as you say, grief is different for everybody and it, it doesn't have to happen in a particular logical order either and and one thing i noticed is with with this kind of disease obviously a terminal disease you start to experience grief before it's even happened before someone's even died and and i didn't realize that was a thing i just thought it was you know i feel like i feel like shit so you know it's probably because this is it's probably because this is happening and then i i looked at exactly that model the Kubler ross model yeah and I, li- I listened to a great podcast uh by Carrie Lloyd, the grief uh, grief cast mm-hmm. brilliant and that that actually got me through it a lot hearing <laughs> other people talk talk about death i would if anybody's struggling with with their grief it, it's it's funny it's sad it's brilliant it's done so well um so listening to that really helped me through it but actually you start to experience those five stages of grief long before actually someone's passed away and actually realizing that it's very difficult to actually realise that that's that you're doing that because she's still there. Yeah, I definitely. So didn't. it was. It's all in hindsight that you look yeah, back at the
2: denial phase and you're like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs>
0: you you mentioned uh, you've done some of um, your own charity work as well for for raising some some money for the brain tumour charity. Talk us through through a bit about that. Yeah,
2: sure. Um, so we we did a one of the twilight walks. Um, a few months into else treatment and that was um myself my wife kids and parents and and i guess until that point we hadn't known really anybody else going through this kind of thing so to turn up in this sports hall in windsor and it just be full of people who are all experiencing or have experienced a brain tumor and then go on this walk around windsor and all of the energy and support was was an amazing feeling actually as much as it was to try to fundraise for the charity um we also then did so a couple of months after she died. My, we were obviously stuck at home in lockdown world. So Gemma and I decided that we would take on this challenge to. This is going to sound completely ridiculous, but climb the height of Everest by climbing the steps from our driveway to our front door, which we Amazing. ended up having to climb 2,322 times over the course of eight weeks. I mean, it was so, <laughs> dull. <laughs> so <laughs> dull.
0: That is brilliant. Um,
2: it's the kind of thing you can do in lockdown. And it was, yeah. again, it's like, I want to do something to help. I want to raise some money. Um, and people definitely got behind us with that. So yeah, anything, anything we can do to help.
0: That that I mean that's brilliant, and actually g- grief in in lockdown especially is it, it, it must be completely different, especially because although I think you you never stop grieving, it just becomes something you learn to live with. But when uh, you know your sister passed, you know relatively you know, recently in, in the grand scheme of things, when you think consider, you know, can you believe lockdown's nearly been a year as well? Yeah. H- how how has that been with lockdown? Do you think it it, it, it naturally it must it must be harder?
2: Really, really weird because probably the hardest thing I found is that at the point at which you want to be closest to your family, and I've got another brother, sister who's in Australia and parents, the point you want to just be with them, you can't. So we've been through this whole period of time kind of talking to each other on Zoom and trying to support Mm. each other that way, but that's the point where you want to be able to support each other and just give each other hugs the most. So that has, that's her. I mean, I'm lucky here in that Gemma's was really good friends with Els and then I guess for the two of us to be sharing happy memories with our young children actually helps both of us to be telling happy stories. I bet. Um, so we've kind of been here as a unit to get through it but yeah it certainly impacted us as a as a wider family.
0: I I, I can understand I've just had i um, I've got three older brothers and, and two of them have just had had babies one in December one in January so I've got a, a, a niece and a nephew and I haven't I've only been able to see one of them I haven't actually met the other one yet um, obviously due to lockdown but I, I can't wait till they're old enough you know it, it kills me that they'll they'll never know their their grandma but also I, I can't wait to sort of be able to, to tell them you know funny stories or or for them to pick up traits that you know w- w- like run down through the family and stuff like that so it's those little moments I think that we kind of have to hold on to um, and, and, and that so
2: to, we're so lucky to have... FaceTime, Zoom equivalents, aren't we? Thank God. And, like, same situation for us where I've got a new nephew but he's in Australia and you just yeah. want to like meet this kid. <laughs> At least we can actually <laughs> yeah. see them and kind of try to.
0: Yeah. God, I do think sometimes God can imagine if it was still the, you know, the years where everyone had a Nokia 3310 yeah. and, you know, no no way of doing this. But look, it, it, it's there's no easy way around it. It's, it's tough. Everyone experiences it. Everyone goes through it a different way. But Richard, thank you so much for, for talking to me about Ellie, Ells, Eleanor. She sounds like as you say an amazing bubbly personality um and, and it is a tragedy as it, as it is with everybody who goes through particular uh, particularly a brain tumor um and it's great to hear that you know obviously the charity who we've teamed up with uh, uh helped you through it and, and are doing their job in in guiding people through through such a a a difficult bleak process and and you know the more we talk about it the more awareness we can make of it and and hopefully you know that will lead to more funding more research and and to curing you know not just this particular glioblastoma brain tumor but all of them um, so Richard thank you so much uh, for talking to us uh, on Motormouth for this special episode uh, we're also going to be doing a, a big charity karting event later in the year something to look forward to when we can all break out of COVID you know we've got big stars Mark Webber's going to be there Karun Chandock uh, we've got James Hunt's Hesketh um, and it's going to be a charity karting day members of the public can go up against celebs and it's all in aid of course for the Brain Tumor Charity so Richard we'd love to see you there and if you're listening you want to come along all the details are at uh, motormouth.club as well Richard thank you Thank you so much. Oh,
2: thank you. I'm definitely going to be at the karting event. Get my help yes. out. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> but no, seriously, thank you so much for doing this series because I think anything we can do to raise the awareness of what the charity is doing, is amazing I know we both want it to happen but the support and the effort you're putting is awesome so thank you and thanks for the opportunity to talk through it
0: thank you so much for taking the time to listen if you've been affected by a brain tumour and don't know where to turn head to the brain Tumour charity.org website where you can find all the information you need if you can you can also donate direct to the charity from our website motormouth.club or straight from the brain tumour charity website too if you can't donate but want to help there are so many ways to do so by simply sharing sharing this far and wide you can also sign up to be a volunteer and help support those affected from wherever you are as well as doing your own fundraising a cure can't wait and remember if you need any more help the charity is here anytime you can call them in the uk on 0808 800 0004